They always say, trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb, and then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but We love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's face it. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money. Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous, like two bedroom suite instead of a one bedroom suite? So you're like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room. So you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your, your guys's room. Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a 40-minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by botanist and research leader at the Royal Botanic Gardens Q, Dr. Alex Monroe, where I ask him, how do plants get their freak on? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We are with Dr. Alex Monroe, who is a botanist at the Royal Botanic Gardens. So picture it. We're 
kind of, we're in London, right? Yeah, on the edge of London. On the edge of London. And we're at Kew Gardens, which is? It's the world's biggest botanical gardens and botanical research institute. So it combines an actual park-like landscape with amazing collections of living plants and then a giant collection of dried herbarium plants, which, which for example, I study on. I think I just saw a tree that was from 1775. Yeah, yeah, you would have, yeah. So that is way old. That's like, that was like the Boston Tea Party and the Battle of Bunker Hill, not to bring up a sore subject mm. in the United <laughs> Kingdom, you know, but I think that was like the same year. Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. Like, wow, mm. that's old. Yeah. Kew Gardens has really been like a living, breathing museum for plants where, where people can come view them. You can see these big, beautiful glass houses mm. that have like palm trees. And I also saw this like, one glass house place that looks it like mimics like high altitude. Oh yeah, things. yeah, the palm, the Alpine house. That's What's amazing. the deal with that? How do you know why? How, why does it mimic the a shade? high altitude? Yeah, because they have to generate cold air in the summer because it's kind of too hot in the summer for it to be alpine. And in the spring, they like to kind of get some of the early warmth that they can kind of um, so that they can have the plants flowering. So it's a really nice greenhouse because they bring plants in when they come into flowers. So it's always full of flowering things. Ah, uh, interest. Yeah, love that. So. Um, when, okay, so now, and then there's also the seed bank. Yeah. Which that is like, so this is like a 300 acre, like big rolling, like hilly, lakey, like, uh, space. But then the seed bank is like, not like that. No, the seed bank is a vault for storing seed. And it's one of the probably only places in the world where you have, uh, I think it's 10 or 20% of the world's diversity of, of plants stored. It's, it's like it, an arc. Did you ever see Panic Room with Jodie Foster in the early 2000s? And um, no. and Kristen Dunn, or not Kristen Dunn, Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart. Uh, it's a classic. It reminds me of Panic Room, but for uh, seeds, mm. basically. So what's the importance of a seed bank? Like, what is it? like? And so, so basically, she's like a vault with a ton of seeds. Yeah, but it gives, so imagine the seeds. Each seed is a potential plant. So when it's planted out, you can, you can then, so that seed is protected and saved and conserved. And the habitat's maybe being destroyed by logging or farming or whatever. And then in the future time, if you want to restore or rescue those species, if they've become incredibly rare, which a lot of them are, you, you could take that seed, germinate it, and then plant it back where it came from. Are any seeds the seed bank ex- like are the plants extinct, or any of them? Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah you should go. Ah, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. So, okay, so that now I mean extinct in the wild, obviously. Yeah. Because they're in the seed bank, but yeah. Ah, that's really incredible. Yeah, when you yeah. think about it. Do you know? Well, not to like pull out a seed bank question because I know that's like not your main thing. But do we know when it was built? The seed bank. Yeah. Like, how long has it been there? 2000. So it's the Millennium Seed Bank because it was built to celebrate the, the Millennium. Now Millennium is all in context yeah, in the title yeah, of the Millennium yeah, Seed Bank. Yeah. Got it. And that's a part of Kew Gardens. Okay, everything's coming into focus for me. <laughs> so now uh, you, Dr. Monroe, so like you were just minding your own business in the United Kingdom when you were little and you realized you wanted to be a scientist? I never really wanted to be a scientist. I think I really wanted to explore and go into forests. I loved being in forests, and I was obsessed with uh, wildlife or nature, insects in particular, actually. <clears throat> insects? I little. Yeah, I loved insects. When I was three, I used to go out into the garden with a plastic bag on my hand and catch bumblebees and keep them in jam jars, which I think is probably 
cruel. But you know, we actually did an episode on getting curious called "How Can We Be Less Rude to Bees." <laughs> Sorry, um, yeah, so no, I was very rude to bees. Well, it's okay. You were curious. You know, you were getting curious when you were really yeah. little. So, how did your life lead you to being? Because your title, because we love a title, yeah. we lo- and you got several. You're a doctor. You're a botanist, and yeah. you're also aren't you like anotherist, like. Isn't there like a like ta- like tax? Are you not like- taxonomist? Yeah, yeah, I am. Aren't you that too? Yeah, I am a taxonomist. As How dare well. you give me that questioning look in your face like I was like getting your credentials wrong? No, because you I terrified you me. I was worried what you're gonna say. No, I was just saying all the things that end in ist, like bigamist or whatever. Oh no no no, no. not like a, no. I'm at like no. Well, and you're when you're a doctor, I feel like usually it's kind of fierce. You know, yeah. biologist or like yeah. a. So what's a taxonomist? Taxonomist is a classifier of things. So we kind of, we say what they are, we identify them, but we also describe and identify new things. So if you think you've got a new species, we're the ones who say, we think, yeah, this is new, and then we describe it. Um, My friend really likes to name plants a lot. Well, and like, because they're a landscape yeah, architect. Yeah, 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 so like Fatsia japonica or something. Yeah. yeah. What's the deal? That's like something from Japan. Yeah. Yeah, so japonica means Japan, like some relationship to Japan, yeah. So if we're hearing, is a juniper from Japan? Juniper sounds a little bit japonica-ish. No, it's juniper, it's not oh, japonica, not no. Why am I so basic? It sounds the same to me. Yeah, no. no. So like, we tend to have, there's two parts to the name, it's a binomial. <clears throat> genus and species, Genus right? and species, the genus is like the group of things which we say are more related to each other than to all the other things. So that's the genus. Wait, why is it more related to it than other things? Because for evolution, obviously, like everything is, so we're all related to each other and all living organisms are related to each other. But obviously, we're more related to each other than we are to grass. So, That's cute yeah. and fun to think about that we're all kind of related. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Yeah, How, major, tell me more about that. that. Well, that's evolution. That's the major assumption behind evolution, which is that things speciate. So you have one species and then it splits into two species. And that's mm. the process. Got it. Uh, yeah. So taxonomist, you had to learn all about like all about like the the titles and all the things. And but it, yours is more about like discovering new things. Yeah, that's my. Main but I jumped interest. around too much because really I want to know how you became one. Yeah. Okay. Yes. How did it become one? Well, actually, I wanted to be an entomologist as a kid to study insects. And then when I went to university, I thought it's a really bad idea to study your favorite subject. So I studied Why? biology because I was an idiot and I just thought I was being clever, but I wasn't. Um, Are you sad now? Do you do you want to study insects? I have, no, I don't. But I have moments when I think, why did I do that? Well, honey, it's never too late. You can go back and become an <laughs> it entomologist. It's not. Yes, it is You're a, a literal baby. <laughs> I don't think so. If you want, if you felt like it, you could. I'm a very, very old baby. I think it'd be really fun if you like all of a sudden like threw all of academia on its heels and were like, no. Yeah. Dr. Monroe is going to go back and become an etymologist now. But anyway, I did, oh. and I had this love for forests, so that was kind of what drove me, really. So I did a degree in biology, and through that I did uh, an expedition to the Bolivian Amazon, which was amazing. We spent two months camping in the Amazon, and, and I just, it, it cemented the fact that I wanted to work in tropical forests. What was going on in the Bolivian Amazon forest then? So we were collecting trees. We were doing, it was a really remote, unexplored area. And it was very rich in primates. I think it's still the richest place in the world for primates with like 12 or 13 species of monkey in a a kind of forest. Where's Bolivia in relationship to Brazil? Is it in central or south? It's kind of next to Brazil. It's north, northwest. So it's in South America, but it's like on the upper part of it? Yeah, Brazil. Yeah. Yeah, So the Amazon sort of extends across into Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia. 
Interesting. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. So you were there for two years, like in your early 20s? Like when no, were... two months. We camped for two oh, months. Moment, two we months, were students. Years. We were like, I think I was 19 or 20. Ah, I Just love that. Just a bunch that. of us. Yeah, it was totally nuts, really. What was, go- like, were you aware of, like, did you have to, like, take any certain precautions, like, when you all went there? Or, like, had to be careful of, like... I guess we should have. But we were, like, we were students. And we were, so it was we're really exciting. Trees. And we were collecting, climbing up trees, you know, kind of 60-foot trees or higher. Love that. Yeah. Nine. Yeah, and, and yeah, and it was just a really, it, it just, it was such an amazing place. So first, your undergrad was in biology? Yeah. So it, through this expedition, I kind of got a segue into looking at forests and tropical, tropical ecology. I started a PhD on that where I was based in Manaus for a couple of years. So in where's Amazon, that? I'm at the capital of the of Brazilian state of Amazonas. Oh. And then I got really sick and then I had to drop out of that. And then I came back to the UK I spent quite a lot of time sick, and then I got a job at the Natural History Museum as a botanist. Um, and then they sort of just went on from that. Wow. Yeah. So then when did you start at Kew Gardens? I started at Kew Gardens about five years ago. Not to give you like a full and like a full yeah, so I spent 20 years of your life. At the, I spent <laughs> 20 years at the museum as a botanist, and then I came here after 20 years, and I've been here for five years. So that tells you that I'm not a baby. Because a botanist is, I know, but you look amazing. <laughs> I mean, so. Um, but so a botanist is somebody who studies plants. So you study plants, and you also like studied like the classification of them. Yeah, so that's the tax, the taxonomy. But botany is like I think everything that's studying plants, and then we study. So my group, taxonomists, say we study the classification description of plants, and we do exploration, do inventories of plants as well. So and also like isn't traveling still a big part of your job? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah, well, so every every probably. Kind of five or six months, I go away and uh, go exploring. So, I've, so for the last five years, I know I've been doing that for for twenty five years. Oh, well, yeah. so even when you were at the museum, you were yeah, still yeah, like yeah, traveling yeah, and doing yeah, that. Yeah, a lot. Fun. Yeah. <clears throat> so you went from the Natural History Museum to the to, to Kew, Kew. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. So you've always been like a scientist who's based in London, like well, except yeah. when you're. <clears throat> I have. I'm. I'm <clears throat> it's probably a bit of a contradiction. I love forests. I love the wilderness. <clears throat> but I was born in London and grew up in London. And we'll probably die in London. Oh, I'm also a Londoner. I love that. Yeah, but it's unusual because it's not, you couldn't, you know, it's not obvious. But it seems like at Kew Gardens, there's like a very large, like, scientific community that's all very much, like, you know, dedicated to, like, all things plants. Totally. So it's about 300 scientists, I think, across the two sites. And everyone is totally dedicated and fascinated and obsessed with, with what they do. How does... How does that community interface with, like, a daily interaction or, like, an outlook on, like, sustainability, climate change? Like, how does Kew Gardens or how does anyone and, like, any tips on how, like, on how scientists are trying to be, like, like, what do you do so we can all do it? Well, I'm not sure we're better than anyone else, but we're certainly really aware of it. And it's something that we talk about a lot, you know, in, in just socially, but also something we try and weave into our work so that what we're doing is helping address climate change. So we do a lot of conservation assessments. So we look at um, species and their current distributions and how they'll be affected by changing climates, for example, with coffee. Mm. Um, been, we've done a lot of work on that. And will the, spe- you know, where will the, will the white populations go? Will they be wiped out or do they have habitat that they can move into? Is that because we're wiping out like parts of forest to grow coffee beans or? No, no, sorry. So like we're looking, so because coffee grows in mountainous areas in, in Ethiopia, and as the climate changes, um, the sites where they grow become too dry. And obviously they have to always have to move up because it gets warmer. And so where can they move to? If they're at the top of a mountain, that's it. They've got nowhere to go. 
And that's and that a big problem like for local plants, economies right? yeah. and yeah. So that's a kind of really practical example, but we but we kind of look at that for many different plants, which maybe you know maybe they don't have any known uses, but they're still really important parts of our kind of global ecosystem. So when you would go out exploring, or like when you currently go out exploring, like what like have you been to like all the continents <laughs> or like six? What I've been to, I've been to Latin America. So the both, I've been to Australia. I've not been to Africa. I've been to South Africa on holiday, but that doesn't count. Uh-huh. You are having Asia, exploring the plans yet. Yeah. But I've done a lot of work in China, for example, in Southwest China, in the limestone plateaus. Oh, you have? Yeah. What was the deal with the plants over there? Oh, it's amazing. So they have this incredible ancient karst landscape, which is limestone that's been weathered by tropical rains for kind of, I don't know, 50, 60, 100 million years. You have these incredible, like, shaped rocks and really spiky. And it's quite difficult for plants to survive on because it's really dry and then really wet and really hot and then cold. And so I've been working on um, the nettle family, which is actually my personal speciality. Ooh, honey, the weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I needed to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. Honey, these premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30. They are giving you washable silk tops. I love the quality of their fabrics. It really is stunning. Oh my God. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash curious for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash curious to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash curious. So I don't know if you all knew that, but we just took a really quick break because our literal scientist had a literal phone call, which I love like how real we are. We can't help it that we're just doing like real podcasts Mm -hmm. in the real world. So, because a lot of times I'm in a studio, but right now we're in your office, which yeah. I think is like interest. So, you welcome back to Getting Curious. We have Dr. Alex Monroe. So, you when you would go exploring, like, and you've been to well, we were talking about China, yeah. And the, and so, because it's hot and it's cold, and the limestone, and for some reason, nettles are really attracted to limestone and especially weathered limestone. Now, what's nettle? Because I feel like nettle, nettle teas. Yeah, so it's, it's a group of about two thousand species of plants in about 50 odd genera so there's everything from small herbs to kind of big trees really yeah and they have i don't know what to say what what are they they got kind of normally the leaves are sort of toothed like the nettle yeah and they have really small inconspicuous green flowers and they're kind of the most boring group of plants that are known to man i think apart from to myself but what's what's the most interesting thing about nettles most interesting about nettles i think it's the fact that that, (laughs) now you've got me now for me, the most interesting thing is the fact that they have incredible female flowers. So the actual female, they're tiny, but they're incredibly intricate and beautiful. And they look really specialized. But the whole group, all the, all the whole family is wind pollinated. And so I don't understand why they have such specialized flowers. Oh, because they don't really diddle. Because they're just like, 
passively kind of accepting pollen that's flying in the air. So they should all look the same in my book, but they don't. And so I think that's kind of interesting. Okay. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up plant sex and not me, because I did want to specifically ask about how do plants reproduce? How do they do it? How do Mm. they, like, what are the different types? So how many different types of, because isn't pollination essentially plant sex or no? Plant sex. God, plants is just so... Different Plastic and different, you know. I mean, they're just like totally non-binary in that sense. Ooh. You know, to put it in a <laughs> why? Because they don't well, cause it, setting. Well, because now you were saying. Wait, did we get on tape? How you were saying that? Like we're all recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I've yeah. been we're sitting all... here this whole time. So, because you know how like you were saying like they were all related, right? Yeah. So yesterday when I was thinking about this episode, I was like, I like I wonder like because I was thinking about questions and I was like, it's like. For plants, like, what is, like, a plant's daily life in terms of, like, if they were human? Like, Hmm. how do they, you know, have babies? How do they reproduce? Like, what would their, like, little environment be like? Hmm. You know, how do they learn? How do they decide to do stuff? Because, like, so, sex feels like the first thing that Hmm. popped up to my mind, you know? I can't help it. Like, chemicals, I can't, I'm a person. And I'm still... Well, it's a big part of their lives. Yeah. They invest a massive amount in sex. Plants do. Yeah, God, a tremendous amount, yeah. They invest tremendous amounts in sex. Yeah. yeah. I love that sentence. Yeah, I mean, if you, look at, if you look at an oak tree at the moment, it's covered in, like, thousands or hundreds of thousands or more flowers. And when it has fruits, imagine how many kind of... Babies. Yeah, how many seeds it produces. So, yeah, so how are the... What are the different types of pollination, like plant reproduction? So, so the pollen is like the, the semen of the plant. Mm-hmm. And so when there's various ways... You, so plants don't just reproduce by taking semen and putting it on an egg. They reproduce in lots of different ways. Okay, so sometimes they basically, bits of them will fall off, and that's a form of asexual reproduction. Sometimes the egg the, in the flower will just develop unfertilized into a, a healthy seed. Really? Yeah, yeah. Love that. That's quite common. Like, well, who does that's that? Quite, um, so, well, a lot of nettles do that. So I've been working on a group of nettles that grow in caves in southwest China. <clears throat> and it seems to be that a lot of them are, that's how they reproduce. Can you tell the difference between a nettle that's like reproduced asexually? You can, not by looking at it, though. You have to take some tissue and you have to basically see what's going on. So is that because, like, tell me more about that. What is it, what's, what, what's the difference? <laughs> um Okay, so when they reproduce, um, it's called apomixis, so asexually, you can look at the chromosomes and you can kind of tell. Oh, and that there's the only short, one? Well, it's just that there's, yeah, so the shortcut, yeah, kind of, the shortcut to doing that is to kind of measure the the weight of the nucleus, and then you can relate that to the size of the genome and relate that back to the kind of chromosome count. So that's used quite a lot. What about, like, um, I mean, obviously, like, ugh, snakes aren't plants, but you yeah. know how, like, sometimes snakes do that? Like, you know, like, snakes Yeah, yeah, can... and lizards. I think, I think geckos can do that. So is that, is that a similar thing? Like, just Yeah, like... it's similar, yeah. Yeah, I'd say it's similar. Yeah, and then plants can also hybridize. So they do tend to hybridize quite What's that freely. Mean? So what they'll, so like, um, basically, a, a female of one species will reproduce if a male of another species. Ooh, how, is there any cool plants and there would be if I had, uh, if <laughs> my memory was any better. You never know where you're going to go with an episode of Getting Curious, no, you know what I mean? I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, there, yeah, there must be, it's not a rare phenomenon. Um, and birds, some birds do that as well. So it's not kind of unique. But then there's but, also, like, isn't there, like, bees taking the pollen? Yeah. <clears throat> there's all the different ways that they get the sperm from the, from the male part to the female part. So there's wind, there's bees, there's uh, mammals. <clears throat> 
Um, you know, there's any, there's tons of different things. There's tiny little micro insects. What's um, an example of like a, because isn't there like, like what, like horses like rub up against something in like North Dakota and then they r- like run around maybe, yeah. and pollinate <laughs> something? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's pretty um, random in a way. I mean, some plants are really uh, have tailored the way that they do it so they attract a particular species of bird or butterfly okay now that's what i want to know about tell me all about that so you have lots of a whole group of plants which in which like to control who takes the pollen how did they know i think it's they they don't know obviously that that's the crazy thing about evolution you don't have to be smart to evolve so you know bacteria evolve and they're obviously not you know to occupy new habitats but they're obviously not thinking you know I've got to do this or something's going to happen. So it's, it's a process of kind of reciprocal process between the two parties. So you have something pollinating something. So you've got something coming in and eating the pollen. And then for some reason, the plant will um, change and it, the flower might get a bit deeper. And so there's less things that can pollinate that plant. But then it oh. turns out because there's less things able to pollinate that, that plant, the ones that can become more specialized because they've got something that no one else can get. And then they'll pollinate it. And then that, that's how the relationship can develop. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's like those yeah. hummingbirds that have like the long things. Yeah, and then things the flower to... gets longer and then the hummingbird's beak gets longer. They become more and more wedded to each other. So for the hummingbird, the cool thing is like no one else can get the sugar by having these really right. long flowers. So you have to have a really long, thin beak, which is basically hummingbirds. So that's the two sides of the relation, the kind of two motivations for it going on evolutionarily. And then... And then to the plant, it means it's got a guaranteed pollinator who's going to go from that individual of that species to another individual of that species. They're not going to go from, you know, like an oak tree to a, a nice daisy, which oh. is not going to be that useful for the plant because its pollen is basically going to be wasted. It can be pretty sure that that thing is going to take its pollen and then go to another individual of that same species and deliver that pollen to... So it's a way of tying it in. Yes. Question. Yeah. Are... So does one plant have like the both anatomies and yeah, so Yeah, so it depends. So, so that's the other thing. You know, some plants have got both sexes in the same flower, so they're kind of effectively hermaphrodite bisexual. Some plants have both sexes, but each sex is in a separate flower, but the separate flowers are on the same individual. Some things have got um each Can some sex, be both? Um yeah, some things can be both. Some things can change sex through time. There's um, a whole group of trees that um when they're small they might be female, when they're tall they become male. Really? Like yeah. who? Like with the fig, uh in the fig family. So like a, a mulberry. I have a mulberry tree in my garden. It starts out female and then as soon as it got to a certain size it became male. How do you know? Because the flowers look different. They're totally different. So the male flowers are kind of look, look nothing like the female flowers. And there's a whole group of trees where this has been studied in some detail. It kind of makes sense. So when the tree is really tall, if it's wind pollinated, that's the time to produce male flowers. So your pollen gets sent long distance on the wind. And when it's small, it doesn't, you know, it's producing the fruits. So maybe the fruits are eaten by birds or in this case it would be. So you don't need to be so, being tall isn't such an advantage. So and then... Fruit is uh so the fruit is the way of one of the ways that you deliver you can deliver the seed. So the seed is like I guess the embryo for us or the So why did what is this whole evolution thing? She's such a big deal. So okay, so there's the pollination. Yeah. Then there's is that is all of the reproduction like pollination based or is there some other kind in the plant world that's like not pollination? 
well, you have the asexual ones where there's no pollination. In, in mosses, for example, it's way more complicated in mosses and ferns, and I don't really want to explain that because uh, it will time myself. Ferns are a green, like, yeah, pre- ferns have resort. Got a totally different strategy. They don't do it. They kind of do it differently. They do it for different life stages. Interesting. So, so they, yeah. That's like another episode of I getting curious with like, a, you, with like a fern person. You should definitely talk to a fern person. I can recommend some. Yeah, because they're old as hell ferns, yeah, right? they have a really cool reproductive system. And it's apparently working. I think so, yeah. We hope yeah, so. Yeah. So now I want to know about, well, actually, I think I want to know more about uh, plant reproduction because I'm still a little confused. Yeah, okay. So trees pollinate everything so everything that's reproducing sexually will be exchanging pollen so it's like us we'll be taking semen and fertilizing an egg like a whole group of plants can also the egg will develop they don't have to receive the pollen so they're basically it's like you're having sex with yourself in some ways and then other things actually can pollinate each other so some in some quite a lot of species the pollen from one flower can fertilize itself imagine that so if you're bisexual you're basically having sex with yourself and you're producing a fertile offspring i feel like you're more pansexual if you're having sex with yourself is that right yeah is that right because bi just means that you're like yeah i feel like bisexual doesn't really apply here because really like if you're having sex with yourself honey you're getting down with everybody because like you'll get down with the other boys the other girls you'll get down with yourself i think they're pan okay okay because they're even more than bi you know what i'm saying they're like into everyone we clearly need to update i also think it's just like it's like it's like it's it's difficult to like to totally compare but you know i do love to you know it's human nature we like to compare so we can understand like what is happening so because there's trees there's so the sex the sex is unrelated to whether it's a tree no i totally get it but like how many different kinds of like how many, what's before genus? Family. You mean what's above genus? Family? Yeah. Yeah. So how many like families of plants is there? There's about 400,000 species of plants and they're in about 350 families. So there's, and then what's before family or above family? Uh, uh, above family, you've got order. How many orders of plants is there? I have no idea. I'm guessing like about 20 or something, maybe more. Because what are, we're in mammal. Yeah, we're a mammal. And then how many is there again? <laughs> what, what, how many mammals? No, like how many like categories or, or whatever? I don't think. Is there like the, five the, or something? The, or is that like really 80s? I'd, Do we not I'd, think about it like yeah, that Yeah, I'd say they're really interesting. Yeah, no, I don't really think. So I guess for us, what we kind of notice are families and the genera and the species. And then the global amount of species. So there's 400,000 species, which is, you know, a wow. fan. And at, the, and at the Millennium Seed Bank, they have like a tenth of those or so in the things. I think they've got like 20,000 species. And here there's like a, like a bunch oh, of big buildings, all the pressed ones. We've got over 7 million specimens here in this building. And we must have about 80% of plant diversity so just in this in, in these buildings. There must be extinct dried out oh, plants. Oh, yeah, 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 for, for sure. sure, yeah. Uh, yeah can't even handle it okay so but there's pollination is how they is how we're procreating and some plants can either pollinate themselves and create seeds to then become their own plants others do you know like they pollinate like other types of uh plants in the same species yeah and then there's other ones that can kind of like cross hibernate i think there's a hybrids of a green, big, bushy plant that I think a lot of people like, you know, now they're thinking about hybrids. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot for that. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, I think that makes sense. Because yeast, like, spuds or something. Like, it just, yeah. like, breaks off of each other. Yeah. Plants can kind of do that as well. So you get bits of root breaking off, like, um, and creating new plants or branches. You know, cutting, you stick a branch in the ground, that's kind of... 
Oh, yeah, that's a little thing. bit spudding. I'd say that was pretty much that, yeah. So they can reproduce that way. Um, they can, as you said, they can fertilize themselves. They can produce seed without any fertilization. Um, is that, and how common the, is that? That's pretty common. I mean, I don't want to give you What are like five trees in the United States or like in the United Kingdom, honey? Like, did one of those trees so, pollinate itself? So you're asking a, a tropical nettle specialist about... Well, I don't know. Tree. I think a lot of them can. And there's, there's kind of... So, so they're just plastic. You know, they try different things in different situations. Um, so, for example, the ones that can fertilise themselves, they may actually put a lot of effort into not fertilising themselves because they don't want... You know, because it's not... It doesn't make sense in the long term. Right. You know, you get the seeds in the short term, you're producing seeds, whereas maybe we're in a situation where you maybe you wouldn't have. But in the long term, you're not going to kind of increase your, your diversity. And diversity is really important. And sex is basically about maintaining um, diversity. diversity. Yeah. So, okay, but actually, that was such a gorgeous segue to an expert on... Yes, okay, we're going to take a really quick break. Uh, we are producers are so good at getting us on breaks. We're going to be right back with more Dr. Monroe after this. If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year. But even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast hosted by Sam Goldman names it, dissects it, and connects in-depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wajahat Ali, Dahlia Lithwick, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. Let's face it. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. We have Dr. Alex Monroe. So you are a tropical plant specialist who specializes in nettles in the Amazon. Nettles in the world. Nettles in the world. Oh, but world, you really yeah. like the Amazon. I do You're really like the Amazon, yeah. So one of my other questions I was curious about mm. is like, what about plants that eat animals? Because isn't there some of those in the, in, the, in the Amazon? Isn't there that Venus thing? Venus flytrap. I'm not sure it's in the Amazon. So that that the plants that eat animals 
um, tend to be in areas where the soils are really, really poor, and they want to get the nitrogen. Where the what soil? The soil. So the, oh, the, the you know the ground. Is, yeah. Is, so there's not a lot of nutrients, and so they tend to be plants which grow where they want to get protein or nitrogen from the protein. Oh, and that's not because the Amazon's, the Amazon's really got some rich. white sand forest, so it must have some. I'm guessing, but I don't know. It's not the most famous place for it. So Southeast Asia's got a lot in. in Oh, it does? Some kinds of forests. Yeah, the, pit, the giant pitcher plants in Africa and Asia. Yeah, the pitcher and, plants. And, and, yeah, and in North America as well. You've they got are? Saracenas. Yeah, you've got the... And what's... Yeah. Do, where, in the, and where in America are so they? They grow in bogs. I don't in know where? Than that. In bogs, in oh. flooded... Oh. Do you call them bogs? Yeah. And then basically that's like a plant where there's like a bunch of like poisonous stuff at the bottom and like the little... Yeah, well, it's kind of, I wouldn't say it's so much poisonous. It's basically really slippery and the thing falls in. It can't get out. It's a really shiny, beautifully kind of waxy, shiny inner surface. And it tries to claw out and in the end it gets exhausted and drowns. And then it, the, the liquid has got enzymes in it, which will dissolve it slowly. What's like the biggest animal a plant can eat? <laughs> a horse? No. Yeah, I'm making that up. Of course not. <laughs> Just like a little, like, do you think it could like, do like a mouse? No, it could do... I'm guessing it could do like a very small lizard or possibly. Okay, like, or so a large fly or a bee maybe. What about that one fly? I hope this is like not not names. I'm pretty sure it is because I think I read about it in like mm. third grade. What about that like really stinky gigantic flower? Rafflesia. What's that? That's what's Rafflesia. their story? That's the world's biggest flower. But that 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 actually that's interesting. So that's not eating insects well i knew it wasn't eating insects so i just no, know it stinks it stinks of rotten meat and it has the color of rotten meat and it's giant the flower can be maybe kind of two foot across and it grows in southeast asia and tropical forests. dang it why does everything i think is amazonian <laughs> in southeast asia is that like a problem in middle of america we think that like everything in the amazon, well, the amazon is amazing thing. and the amazon is the most incredible place but um just unfortunately not for those things who knew okay so what are your favorite plants other than nettles in the Amazon, yeah, I think the epiphytes, so the plants which grow up in the branches, the bromeliads, and then there's um, lots of orchids, and they're stunning. There's orchids, yeah, and there's a particular family which isn't either of those actually called the aroids, which are the. Do you have the Swiss cheese plant? Yeah, no, no, we call um, monstera. You probably have a, a, a cooler name for it, but it has a, it's a large leaf which is kind of very deep indentations. Very glossy. It's grown a lot as an office plant. Anyway, I didn't know that. That family has tons of amazing species growing as epiphytes in, in the Amazon. What is, um, we just did an episode on uh, some of the deforestation that's going on in the Amazon. What has been um, some plants that are having a hard time with just surviving in the face of deforestation and in climate change in the Amazon? Like, what are you kind of studying down there? Like, what's, your, what's, what's happening? So we do botanical inventories. So we're normally looking at what's there rather than uh, what's not there. Mm. Um, That's kind of an optimistic way to see, yeah, to approach I mean, it. Love that. The Amazon is incredible. The Amazon is, like, is one of the least explored and collected places for plants in the world. So we still know very little. Oh, yeah, because you are, like, helping to figure out, like, what the new things are. Yeah, and what's there, you know, basically what's there. Yeah, tell me about that. So that, so, um, well, we we do our collecting and then we um, bring the stuff back here. We compare it with what we've got in our reference collections. And in that way, we identify things which which we know are are new, or at least not not known. When's, like, the last time you, or you guys, like, identified, like, a new fun thing? So I just came back from Brazil, actually, in December. Um, I think, well, there's a bit of argument amongst us as to whether it was new or not, but we discovered several things which we think are new growing on this kind of limestone blocks. Um, 
which was a tree in the custard apple family. Do you have custard apple? I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like <laughs> for sure not a plant expert on North America. No, yeah, no. Or any you can get it. You can get it or... in supermarkets sometimes. It's like a big fruit, about that big gray green color with lots of segments on on the outside, and it's a creamy white flesh inside. Really delicious. No, I don't think it's I've ever even heard of that. Apple, yeah. Custard apple. That sounds like fun content. Yeah, something we're gonna that, Google probably. it. So you, but so what was the argument? Because like some people are like, no, no, that's like. So they think that. So at first we thought it was new because it has really unusual flowers, and it's just to me it looks different. And then they kind of think it's something which is already described, but just a really unusual form of it. So what do they I'm think it really, is? They think it's something a species which is known, not well known, but known from a couple of collections, um, about a few hundred miles away. And I think it maybe isn't. Neither of us are specialists in this family, so we're kind of. You know, that's the one. That's the thing about exploration is you're you're very often collecting things that you're not the expert on. So I'm an expert on nettles, but I don't spend all my time collecting nettles. I collect everything, and so when we do these expeditions, um, we're not necessarily the expert identifying, but we have the expert expertise here in our collections. And also, for many plant groups, there are no experts. You know, really? Yeah, yeah, tons, yeah. So some of these, some, you know, groups of trees and there's no experts to identify them. Do you think that that, I mean, because when we think about in history, like plants have been so important to like doing, isn't like, aren't there like, isn't penicillin from plant well, or something? Well, it was found growing on rotten melons. I'm not oh, sure fun. that counts. Well, kind of. Because yeah, the, melons, the are, melons, yeah, you wouldn't have had So it's like we wouldn't fungus. have known. It's a fungus. Ah, isn't a fungus a yeah. plant or no? no? No, that's another one of the species. Unrelated. And totally, totally unrelated. We're, we're closer to fungi. Well, fungi closer to us than they are to, to plants, to green plants. Gross. Yeah. But sometimes they interact with each other. Yeah. But we do as well. I mean, we interact with plants totally. and, and fungi as well. Yeah. Okay, but wait. Back to nettles. Yeah. How many places do nettles live? Everywhere. All the tropical areas and most of the temperate regions. So, like, you know, everything from tropics to, to cool. Are all nettles like kind of like that dark greenish color? Or is there like ever like different colored nettles? Actually, that's not a bad question. They're all more or less that color. But some are little and some <clears> are big? Yeah, you get big trees with vicious things to small, tiny little things with leaves a couple of millimeters long that are fairly harmless or totally harmless. Are some like po- like poison ivy-ish to the touch or mm, something? Well, some have got really nasty stings, but they don't have a chemical that will... It's just if you run into you it? But this thing is bad. There's one in, in, I think, New Zealand, which is said to be able to paralyze a horse. I have no idea if this is true. But I, I gather if you get stung by it, your arm will be in pain for weeks. What does get stung by a nettle mean? Um, you brush into it. And the nettles, the hairs of nettles are designed like hypodermic needles. So when you press them, you kind of, it's kind of like squeezing the needle. And it just injects liquid into your... It does? You, yeah. See, we've completely yeah. buried the lead. Did you not know that? No. Oh, God, yeah. Tell us more about That's nettles. Called, so the Latin name for a, 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 the genus is Urtica, and the whole family is called Urticaceae, and Urtica means to irritate. Ah, and, Urk. Um, and Urt. I don't know why. But, but it sounds um, like Urk, you know? What does Urk mean? Like to Urk someone. Oh, really? Like you're being very Urksome. Irksome, oh, yeah. 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 I've heard that a lot. So the, the so these needles, I mean, these hairs, if you look at them under the microscope, they look just like needle, like a, the end of a hypodermic. And when you brush into it, the, the mechanical force of you touching the leaf and its resistance injects the contents. And they have this bulb at the base of the hair, and it gets injected into you. 
And then they contain various chemicals, I think, which, uh, well, yeah, they definitely contain various chemicals which will cause irritation. And there's thing that you get in the US and here and in Europe. I mean, it's not pleasant, but it's not like kind of, it's not that big a deal. It goes after a, a half an hour or so. But in Asia and in Australia and New Zealand, there are some which, are, you know, you, you'll be in pain for weeks from getting stung. Interesting. Yeah. They don't all have the hairs, but, but that properties kind of spread around the family how does nettle relate to like what like what else is popping with nettle like is it important like ingredient in anything i have to say (laughs) i i i'm fascinated by them but they don't really have anything that's kind of life-changing or or world-changing they're just Mm. kind of just interesting in their own right in their own little corner they're just hanging out yeah exactly and they do lots of cool things and um and they're worth studying, and they're worth conserving and, and protecting. Are they having or nettles like becoming like kind of like? Are they getting sad anywhere because of like climate change? Yeah, a lot, there's a whole couple of groups which live in very deep shade and, and kind of very wet and, and quite specific undisturbed environments, and they suffer a lot from deforestation when you open up the canopy and it gets hot and dry. Oh. And from climate change to some extent as well as forests are drying out, and because these things are just not used to living without moisture. How does that work, like, in deforestation, if you, like, were, you know, like, when deforestation happens, like, so a rainforest has, like, a very dense, like, multi-layers of, you know, vegetation, yeah. And so when, when it comes in to get cleared, because a lot of times it's getting cleared out for farmland, right? Yeah, I mean, it's generally pretty bad for farmlands. The whole deforestation in the Amazon is, is, is nuts. You know, it's completely crazy, because... The amazing thing about the Amazon is it's an incredibly rich forest, you know, big, tall trees, beautiful, lush, really diverse. It supports a lot of wildlife. And it's, and it's, it's a big juggling act. It's growing on this wafer thin layer of soil and organic matter in, in many places. And, and so it juggles the nutrients. The nutrient cycling is really fast, and that's how things manage to grow. But when you look at this as an outsider with no kind of understanding of how how things are working you think wow this must be really good land because it's got these massive trees on it but what they do they cut down the trees and then they burn the land so and then all the soil is just gone that small amount of soil the, the whole kind of magical trick of recycling and keeping this dynamic these nutrients moving you've just destroyed it and then you're just stuck with this really really old highly weathered soils so what's nutrient cycling so nutrient cycling is the way so so plants get their you know, they, they can't go out and hunt and catch things apart from the, the things we spoke about. Most plants get their, their, their sugar, their carbon, they get from carbon dioxide in the air and they get some of their nitrogen that way as well. But they still need other nutrients, minerals. Um, and that's done through, uh, so they, they're harnessed from the soil and then the plant grows and the leaves die and fall off. And the nutrients in that dead material then decompose, get absorbed by bacteria or fungi and work their ways back into the soil to be reabsorbed. That's the whole, like, corn getting planted one year and then soybeans the yeah, next because exactly. they, like, put each yeah. other... Yeah. They like, so, balance each other or whatever. Yeah, and in Europe, like, we have we have the, the frosts, like the freezing in the winter, which then liberates lots of minerals in the soil and, and basically creates a pulse of nutrients. In the tropics, you don't have that. You know, you don't have a freezing. So all your nutrients have to be conserved. Oh, just like you all have the to time? keep cycling them, yeah. You can't really afford to just chuck them, chuck them away. And so plants have the, the ecosystem and the kind of, not the individual species, but the whole system has, is, is cycling things in a very dynamic way. 
so that those nutrients are kept basically in play as much as possible. In Europe, we don't have to do that because we have frosts and our soils are much deeper and they're more nutrient rich. But in the tropics, so when European farmers first came to the tropics, they saw these lush forests and they assumed that they were really rich soils, so they cut everything down. They'll grow maize on it. And then you grow a pathetic crop of maize. And, and you're scratching your head thinking, you know, why, why is this, what went wrong? And it's because of the way that they, that they do it. And so deforestation is in the, the Amazon is not really suited for agriculture. So, right. So, so, when, so the key thing is when you grow crops, you basically take those nutrients which end up in the seeds or the fruit, whatever you're eating, and you take them away. So they exit the system. Because they go into the food. Yeah, and then they get exported or whatever. So that's, that's kind of totally different to what happens in the system prior, where right. it's always being cycled. And when you, as soon as you're just taking nutrients out all the time, obviously you kind of you deplete the system quite, quite quickly. So when we were talking about sugar and how yeah. plants get their sugar, isn't there something about like chlorophyll and sugar? Yeah, no, not in sugar. So chlorophyll is the... Is the ke- it's what is it? It's a chemical really that's that absorbs the energy or helps absorb the energy, capture the energy in sunlight, and then it gets for a really complicated or complex kind of set of reactions. That sugar is passed on and converted into into the sugars that the plants use. So, but chlorophyll does have something to do with like okay, because I don't know if you remember this movie with Adam Sandler and uh, Billy Madison, honey, and he's in the science class, and he's like chlorophyll, more like borophyll, and I feel like it gave chlorophyll this like bad name. So, like, what the fuck does chlorophyll do? So, as I said, it's a chemical that is able to capture or help capture because it's a really complex system. But the chlorophyll is the uh, is like a pigment that can oh, yeah, absorb it's green. certain wavelengths. Yeah. So Does nettle have chlorophyll? Yeah, all, all green plants. All green plants. So we see chlorophyll as green because it's reflecting green light. So it's not absorbing the green color, but it's absorbing the the rest. I guess science is so <laughs> much, right? Again, not my, not really my domain. But that's but the, it's an amazing chemical. Yeah, and it enables you to kind of harness the energy in, in sunlight. So why, when they do, like if you're if you're clearing away, st- I wonder why we're burning it first because we do everything without thinking you know it's so arbitrary what we do and how we like farming it, 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 farming in europe evolved in europe to deal with the conditions in europe and it's sustainable in, in you know in many parts of europe but it becomes a cultural thing and then you go somewhere else and it's part of your culture you know to raise cattle or grow sweet corn or maize and so you go to another part of the world and you sort of impose this totally ill-suited approach to doing things there and it doesn't work you know and because it doesn't work you have to get fertilizers and you have to keep clearing more and more forests oh yeah and rather than stop and think why isn't it working what could we do that works oh no there's none of that we just continue plugging away at trying to farm cattle on land that just isn't suited for it one isn't that like it all it's like corporate it's like money it's like yeah, I guess it's money. It's also a total lack of imagination and thought. You know, you just have to sit back and think about it. I mean, you'd probably make much more money not doing that. I, I often see cattle farmers in, 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 in the Amazon, and they're doing it because it's a high-status occupation, but they're not making much money. So when you're talking about, like, the Amazon not really being well-suited for, like, uh, agriculture because of, like, the nutrients and, like, how it works, like, well, so 
how does like Europe have like deeper soil, but like the Amazons is more like, is that just cause like, you know, Europe's is like colder and it has like the whole frost thing? Yeah, so soils are replenished much more. They may be more fertile anyway, because they're younger. The Amazonian soils are quite old, which means that they've had water flowing through them for a much longer period. And they've been losing, you know, they lose some nutrients in that way. Not all of the Amazon, some of the Amazon has good soil, but but the bulk of it doesn't. Which is why when you clear a forest and you start growing a crop, you have it for like 18 months or something. And then you have to start thinking about what else to, to do with that site. So uh, again, no, this isn't your expertise. Can't help but no, it's yeah, a yeah, yeah, question. Sorry. No, um, no. Well, this, I should not. No, this is even it. another question. <laughs> now, so um, like, because you're talking about the frost in Europe. Yeah. Like, is there like. Well, the, everywhere, you know, in the US. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, frost. Like, because isn't there like seeds like have to kind of like hibernate or like they just like kind of like. Yeah. And then, like, the, does the cold wake them up? Like, what's that whole deal? So the, the seeds have different mechanisms for waking up and different triggers. Sometimes it's – so it could be a frost if they want to be germinating as soon as the winter starts. Or it could be that they wait for heat in the soil or day length or fire. You know, some seeds require fire to germinate. Isn't... They may need to be digested or passed through the gut of an animal. Ooh, what yeah, do that? Yeah, so um, there's quite a few things that do that, actually. Like mushrooms that grow out of poop or something? No, it's fungus. I get it together. Yeah. No, there's kind of things which need to be swallowed and passed out in the in the poop, and then they'll germinate from there. What about like the poppy? Wasn't that from like 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 from like? Isn't there like something like it's like triggered from like banging on it or something? I don't know. I, I yeah. I mean, possibly. Added that I, out. No big yeah, deal. I, I, I've not heard that. But that's like... okay. So great. So germination, nettles, chlorophyll. It is not borophyll. Uh, so this is the part in our recording where it's like. Uh, maybe you're an uh, Amazonian expert and on nettles, and I didn't ask you anything about that. And so, just kidding. But, like, what do you want, like, what do people need to know? It's like Yogi Ree says it's towards the end of our recording. Like, what do you think we should know about? I mean, I thought it was really interesting when you're talking about the lack of imagination on figuring out how to kind of deal with the sustainability. Yeah, so, I, I think I'm a botanist, right? I'm not going to, I'm not here to give life, tell anyone about economic development or the rest of it. But I think it's pretty clear there are a ton, there are like thousands of potential food crops and fruit crops out there growing in the wild that we don't use for cultural reasons mainly. Um, and we could just use everything in a lot with a lot more imagination and it would be more sustainable, probably economically productive and easy. Having said that, that really isn't my domain. I think the message I would like to get across from my domain is that there are a lot of species, there's 400,000 species of plant, just imagine that, that's a lot each one with its own unique evolutionary history, doing its own thing and having some kind of specialization. Um, and there are probably about 10% of those remain undiscovered. Whole bits, you know, whole bits of the Amazon have never been explored botanically. So we don't know what's there. You know, it's like a big, big gaps on the map. And not just in the Amazon, other places as well. So there's still, there's still a big scope for exploration, describing new species. You know, we, we're kind of trying to keep up with... <laughs> destruction we're still, we're still trying to describe everything that's there as it's sort of going before it gets destroyed yeah. or as it's getting destroyed or after it got destroyed as well in some cases okay wait i know we're almost seven hours well. so when's like the last time we discovered a new nettle uh last year we described a new one from but every year we describe some we do yeah yeah yeah, yeah. cuz so when you find <laughs> one when you're out exploring and then you bring it back cuz like do yeah. you guys have to like run little dna tests on the nettle to make sure we that we do sometimes so if it looks really similar to something else and we're not quite sure then we would it's quite expensive to do the dna tests and um we don't always have access for that 
But when we do, if it's something we're not sure, yeah, we definitely do that. Do you ever like uh, compare like the toxins and the like irritating chemicals? Like, does does like the Australian do. ones have like different ones? Than... I should do. I kick myself sometimes. No, I'm sure someone must be doing it. No, I've never, I've never kind of got into that side of it. I've, I'm still trying to get on top of describing everything and. and identifying it all and knowing what it is and how it should be kind of arranged in the classification. Do you ever get together with like other fun little botanists who, who <laughs> yeah. specialize in nettles and like yeah, chat yeah. with them like once a year or something? Uh, yeah, there's about three of us. <laughs> really? Yeah. There's only three nettle experts? Well, probably more. Say, say there's six, three of them are retired in their 70s. Um, one's in his 80s and two in the 70s. And there's myself and there's probably about maybe three more. So we don't meet that often, but we kind of all know who we are. Y'all, if you're looking for some job openings, it sounds <laughs> yeah. like we need some nettle experts up in here. You know what I'm saying? Um, Dr. Alex Monroe, thank you so much no, for your it's time. It's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure. I had so much fun uh, getting to meet you. Thanks for having us. We really appreciate yeah, it. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Venice. My guest this week was Dr. Alex Monroe. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. Please! Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousJBN. We are officially verified on Twitter. Yes! Our socials are run and curated by Emily Vosick. Getting Curious is produced by me, Julie Carrillo, Ray Ellis, Chelsea Jacobson, and Colin Anderson. And actually, Emily Vosick also helped produce this episode. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Love you, kisses, mean it. Bye.